Welcome to Act 3, the podcast where we explore how to thoughtfully shape the rest of our lives. I'm your host, Kara Gray. This podcast is sponsored by Good Morning Freedom, my retirement coaching service where I help executives and professionals plan their Act 3. For more information, stay tuned until the end. Today, I welcome Diane Dry to the podcast. For 32 years, Diane led Snowbird, a five-gallon bottled water company in the New York area. Diane's team included 120 employees. Her expertise is in financial control, marketing, and negotiations. During her tenure, she focused on branding, product line, and territory expansion. Growth led the company to its to leave its Manhattan roots and relocate to an expanded facility in Jersey City. In retirement, Diane founded and ran for five years a culinary travel business, which also brought serious chefs from around the world to Chengdu, China, to study at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. Since 2008, Diane has been active with SCORE New York City, a volunteer business consulting organization. Diane has counseled over 1,000 entrepreneurs. Her focus is profitability, and she lightheartedly calls herself the money lady. Lots more on that later. Um, from 2014 to 2016, Diane was chairperson of SCORE New York chapter, which uh, has 100 volunteer members. Diane's most recent project is educating female entrepreneurs in money matters. She has developed the program called Money 101, a series of classes on personal and business finance to take the fear out of finance. Diane is also involved in a variety of real estate projects. She is experienced in construction, NYC DOB regulations, and brownfield site remediation. In 2021, she published a, a book uh, that's a guide on how to comply and survive the NYC, um, the Facade Inspection Safety Program. Diane holds an MBA from New York University and is a graduate of the Harvard Business School Education, Executive Education Owners and President's Management Program. Welcome, Diane. That is quite a bio and resume to get through. I'm incredibly impressed. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Sure. Happy to do it. So. Cool. So I want you to start not at the beginning. We won't start at the beginning of your life, but we will start with your work at Snowboard, Snowbird. When you were, you know, it was about 30 years of your career. And I want to know kind of what your daily schedule looked like, how, how much you were working, um, if you were finding any free time, things like that. Well, during, uh, first of all, I was very fortunate to be born into a business family. And my family purchased this company out of bankruptcy in 1940. And I joined um, as I was graduating undergraduate uh, in the very late 70s. And we were at that time located in Manhattan. We had a bottling plant where we put water in five-gallon bottles. And then we distributed it throughout the New York tri-state area with our own trucks. Most of our clients were commercial establishments such as offices, schools, uh, factories, warehouses. Uh, and we really, my father passed away during those years. Our company was known at that time as filtered water service. Pretty generic. I used to say it was <laughs> so generic, even our own customers didn't know our name. 
So um, after he passed away, I took over the company. Uh, I was president. I was very young. I was 32 years old. I was trying to figure out which way was up and which way was down. It was a really challenging wow. period. But, and it was mainly a male-oriented field. So I'd say 85% of the people who worked for us were men. We had women in the office, but you know we were talking about a repair shop, a, a manufacturing plant, truck drivers. So it was it was a new world for them also listening to a young woman direct the time. <laughs> we had a lot of fun together. There was no one better than the people who worked in our company. And I to this day, I miss them tremendously. So um, one of my challenges, we had really exhausted the facilities in Manhattan. I went to look for a new place to move the company. And my biggest project of my life was finding a abandoned warehouse in Jersey City on a contaminated brownfield site which I purchased with 100% borrowed money and then began a huge renovation project to turn it into our headquarters and bottling plant. And I had a blast doing it. I love construction. I particularly love demolition. We tore down um, some of the flooring to make high ceilings. We set aside one third of the building to rent out to another company because it was too big for us. We renovated the rest to be both our new bottling plant and um, our office headquarters. And we relocated in, I think it was 2000, uh, out to Jersey City. From that point on, my day would start about 7 a.m. when I would jump in my car and try to get out at 7.30, try to get out to the, <laughs> get out to the office. Um, I had five key managers who controlled different aspects of the build business, and they were my direct reports. So a good part of my time was spent talking with them about what their latest crisis was. When you run a small mm -hmm. business, there is no lack of crises. You never have enough. I'm money. sure. You always have enough <laughs> and never enough customers. And, you know, it's you're always trying to plug the holes. Um, but but being situated in this beautiful new facility that was very close to Manhattan ultimately became my ticket for retiring because my competitors, which were Nestle and some other large companies, were trucking their water over 200 miles in order to get it into Manhattan. And when I, many years later, decided it was time for me to exit, um, I approached them and they really wanted the facility that I had built. Nice. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, upset customers because when they would call screaming and want to talk to the boss, uh, people, I said, always put the calls through to me. And my biggest challenge was to see how long would it take before I could get them to laugh. And I did that primarily by being completely empathetic with their plight that their water cooler might not have been working, that the delivery didn't come on time, that their bill wasn't correct, and really trying to put put myself in their shoes. And I and I had a lot of I had a lot of fun with it. Um, we we had thousands of customers, so who were transacting unfortunately very small amount of money. So we had a yeah. little a lot of a lot of collection activity going on. It wasn't the most important bill in most offices. We mm. 
we later had a big challenge because a large part of our business was not just selling the bottled water, but renting water coolers. And we had both bottle type water coolers and fountain coolers. Those are the ones that plugged into the plumbing. And in, in the early 90s, um, big box stores started carrying these machines very, very cheaply that were being imported from China. And that was a big problem for our industry because all of a sudden people were saying, gee, why should I rent this thing for $15 a month when I could buy the unit for 150 bucks? And we had lots of challenges there. The way we answered it in our company was we expanded our product line into coffee and office refreshment products. We became distributors of a lot of other stuff and we delivered it with our own truck, sort of filling up the office pantry. It was a a more difficult um, uh, road to go down because we had so many, all of a sudden we had all these inventory products. We used to have like five products. Now we had 250 products and keeping that is really challenging, but it was one of the ways that we survived. The other way we, we, what, what I did during my tenure Um, which began while we were still in New York, is that I realized we needed to do some branding. And I had never had a formal marketing education. I didn't know too much about it, but I knew that the name Filtered Water Service wasn't cutting it. So we went to a, a Madison Avenue marketing firm and said, help us. And they said, you know, the name's got to change. And we began looking at what we could name our company that was not site specific. And at that point, our large competitors were Great Bear, which used the bear as a symbol, and Deer Park, which used the deer as a symbol. And they thought, well, maybe Snowbird would be the right appropriate name. And we liked that name and we created a logo associated with it. And then we put it on all of our trucks and all of our water coolers on our bottles. What's a fun fact is that because we were delivering in New York City, where people would be looking down from skyscrapers, we actually put our logo on the roof of trucks so people could see it. Nice. Very smart. It was cool. And we began to build some brand awareness, but that, you know, that was sort of after my father had passed away and during my tenure, Um, we were situated in Jersey City. Uh, We were in the Liberty State Park area with a beautiful view of Manhattan and the uh, Hudson River on from my office. And we were, sadly, we were firsthand viewers of the World Trade Center down 9-11. Yeah. I had two trucks and truck drivers that were downtown at that time. We were petrified what might have happened to them. Um, We are extremely fortunate that nobody of our team was hurt. And we stood on the peninsula of Liberty State Park, ready with uh, water to give to uh, first responders and to the people we thought they would be bringing over by boat. And the saddest thing is that nobody came. Basically, either people made it out or they didn't make it out at all. So there were many of us on the peninsula of Liberty State Park just sitting there all day waiting. Uh, after that, New York went through a difficult time and my company went through a difficult time because yeah. it took a big recovery. 
and um but we we did make it out we made it out um and uh, in my desire to see our sales go up i went uh, after some government contracts which my my father had always dissuaded me from because they were so low in terms of profit but we won um we won a huge contract um later you know about 5 6 years later to service uh, a good portion of new york city and we took it away from our major competitor and they were pissed because you know here was this young woman who was running her little scrappy company with you know th- we had maybe 38 trucks at that time um, and they were a national brand. And how dare she come in and, and pull this out from under us? And so as our sales were going up after many difficult years, and my partner at the time was turning 65 and thinking of retiring, I said, you know what? It's good to get out when you're on the upswing. Sorry. All <laughs> my major competitor, the one that I had just stolen the company from, the, the contract from. And I said, I know you're not interested in buying me, but before I do anything else, I wanted to just check. And of course, they were extremely positive. This was Nestle. They said, We want to talk mm-hmm. to you. We definitely would like to work with you. Um, and because not so much because they wanted to get rid of me as a competitor, but because they wanted the bottling plant I had built so close to New York City. Yeah. And thus began what I call an extremely win-win situation. And um, I have a very, very good feeling about the negotiations that took place in 2007 and we uh, kept it extremely private because no one had expected at my young age, I was then around 52, that I would sell the company. Yep. I knew that when this contract came to an end in two more years, it was a three-year contract, that my competitor was so angry, they would have given it away for free. And I wasn't I was pretty confident we would not be able to survive because there were a lot of other very tough business things going on. And I said, rather take this opportunity, get out while the the going is good and you have something to sell. And so we made a handshake deal in 2007 and then we closed January 31st, 2008. And if those of you who are old enough to remember at that point, the entire world <laughs> fell apart. Sure did. Um, we would never have made it through the 2008-2009 recession. Uh. Um, I'm fortunately, all of my truck drivers and many of my warehouse staff was retained by Nestle. Um, it was heartbreaking to me. They did not take many of our, although they did take some of our uh, office staff, but they were very, very pleased with the transaction. It went smoothly. I kept my word to them. I didn't play them off against anybody else. Um, and they, um, and I, and I remember asked saying, you know, they asked me during the end, they said, Diana, is there anything that you would like? And I said, well, yes, I said, I would. I said, at the end of the closing, after everything is done, I would like the head of your entire bottled water division to call me and say they are happy. And this was not somebody I was dealing with. I was dealing with the commercial five gallon end. And we closed, everything went very smoothly. And 24 hours later, my cell phone rang. 
and it was the head of the bottled water, the entire water division for Nestle. And he said, I am happy. And that made me very, very pleased. They sent me flowers. It was <laughs> a really great, great um, transaction. I did not sell that new warehouse that I had built. I rented it to them. And so we thus had a relationship where I was their commercial landlord. landlord for yep. quite a few years. Um, ultimately, I did sell the building because I believe in diversification. And um, But I have nothing but positive thoughts about the whole transaction and also watching the quality of how Nestle dealt with. I mean, they really uh, improved any processes that I had and it gave me great confidence in their products. So, um, you know, that's unusual to speak so highly of your acquirer, but I, I have yeah. things to say. Certainly. Oh my goodness. That is a beautiful story and the start of a glorious retirement. So you had control over this. You knew it was an exit. You knew you were selling. You knew the timeline. Did you start to think about what you would do after? When did you start to think about what you were going to do? What was very interesting is in addition to the financial aspects of exiting, a, a very personal aspect was that my partner at that time, who is now my husband, was <laughs> was retiring essentially when he turned 65. He's a lot older than I am. Uh-huh. And I had gone with him to a retirement seminar where they talked about what he could do when he retired. About that, <laughs> he, he had no interest in any of the options. But I, I heard about an organization called SCORE, which is associated with the Small Business Administration. So it's on a federal level. It's their yep. volunteer arm, and it's essentially retired executives who help coach and mentor for free entrepreneurs at different stages of their business. So I thought, this sounds like something interesting. And uh, after I closed down more or less the day-to-day activities of my business or what I had to be involved in, because even when you sell, there's a lot that goes on afterwards, I went in for an interview at SCORE, and it was love at first sight because I could feel the energy was very much that business-oriented energy most of the people that I encountered who were mentors were uh, either presidents of their own companies, so they knew what it was to meet a payroll, which is always mm-hmm. a defining aspect of being a, an entrepreneur, or they were very high up in a larger organization where they had significant managerial responsibility. And there is a great camaraderie among SCORE mentors uh, and that goes on there throughout the country. There are approximately 13,000 volunteers in SCORE in 300 uh, local offices. I happen to report to the New York City office, which is one of the top five, ten, five to 10 uh, in the country. Yeah. And so I joined them. And I began mentoring uh, entrepreneurs. And as I always said, is you know, during my 32 years, I made so many mistakes. So I may as well share them with you and see if I can help you prevent them. For sure. Uh, and uh, I, as I, as I mentioned, um, I have seen over a thousand clients, but somewhere out, over in, I've been with SCORE now 15 years. I'm still very active with them, but I have changed my role significantly. 
So one of my first role changes was to become in charge of the chapter, uh, whereby I, you know, led the entire team of this New York City chapter. And my push during my two-year term was to increase membership and to bring in people that were not just direct mentors, but could support mentors by helping with marketing, helping with community outreach, helping with uh, what office organization. And we grew during those two years from 50 members to 100 members. So I felt pretty successful because, and I, you know, in, in, in leading that charge. Since the next thing I did, which I started during that period, is I realized that we were, most of our clients were smaller startups, or they may have had two or three employees. And I felt there was a middle market that greatly needed advice. Privately held businesses, often family businesses that had maybe 50 or more employees. But they didn't need just a one-off advice where they'd come in and meet with a SCORE mentor to get an advice on a problem. They needed more strategic advice and hand-holding. So I began a, a, um, a service out of New York City called the SCORE Advisory Board. And what we would do is we would put together a team of three to four mentors who would meet with a company on an ongoing basis for at least a year. And in most cases, it lasted about three years. We would meet four times a year as a team and um, catch up with the CEO and hold the CEO accountable to make progress on their overall goals. So the idea was not to be working in your business, as they say, but to be working on your business. Mm-hmm. And, this, and uh, we were the nudge to the CEO. I mean, after all, most CEOs, it's a very lonely place to be. You can't turn to your employees for advice or friendship or help. They're your employees <laughs> and your family yeah. member. While they mean well, they generally don't have the knowledge. So we were right. in people with diverse expertise, for instance, perhaps a person in finance, a person in, in marketing, a person in product development and uh, or whatever there or maybe there were they were looking for acquisitions, a company in order to grow, wanted to buy another firm. Uh, or product expansion. So we would take three score or three or four score mentors who had expertise in those areas and assign them to the company to work on a long ongoing basis. And that that product uh, from SCORE New York City is still active. It's wonderful for companies that have an executive team. If you just have a CEO running their own business, one-on-one mentoring is sufficient. But when you have a mid-tier of managers who sometimes also are afraid to communicate to the CEO what they really think, having this advisory board has, has proved really very helpful. So it's a great resource. I wish I had known about it when I was in business, unfortunately. Right? Yeah. I didn't even know about SCORE, but it's a wonderful, wonderful. So that was, so first first position, I was the chapter chair. Second, my, myself with the assistance of a friend of mine who was also SCORE mentor, we ran the advisory board practice. Um, 
Then my third, after that, I someone else very competent, more competent than me, took it over. Um, my third and current project for SCORE is uh, financial literacy. And while I was meeting with a thousand uh, entrepreneurs who were struggling to put together business plans, I realized that at the heart of it is that they had no knowledge of their own personal finances. They didn't have a budget. They didn't know what a personal financial statement was. They didn't understand their 401k plans. They didn't understand a match. They didn't understand vesting. They didn't know how to invest in stocks and bonds. They didn't know what diversification meant. A lot of people heard fancy things like, oh, I want to jump into real estate. They didn't understand the costs associated with it, getting in and getting out. And so I began a program, which is what I'm very actively involved in now, called Money 101. You're the money lady. I'm the money lady. (laughs) And what I do in small interactive sessions, generally groups of about 12 people at a time, Mm -hmm. we do a segment. A segment is five classes on a particular topic related to money. Each class is two hours long. Wow. And you're you're welcome to sit in and observe. Yeah, that's a lot of curriculum. That's amazing. And I have developed this now over the past three years, whereby um, I'm walking people through different aspects related to money. So for instance, our first foundation class, we talk about W-2 earning. I spend two hours analyzing a paycheck. Can you imagine that? Because when we talk about <laughs> it, we talk about not only hourly earnings, salaried earnings, we talk about overtime, we talk about the withholding taxes, how how they're calculated, what it means. We talk about estimated taxes. We talk about Medicare and Social Security and what does that mean? Most of the students in my class have never checked their social security account. They have no idea what it's all about. Some of my students are immigrants. We then talk about 401k plans and the Family Medical Leave Act. And so we, and all of this is tied into then the W-2 and how to read your W-2. That's all in class one. Wow. (laughs) We talk about independent contractors. What are the tests for an independent contractors? If you're an employer, all the things that you have to be aware of, if you're an, if you're an independent contractor yourself, all the other aspects you should be aware of to protect yourself. We then go on to my, I have, I believe that there are two documents every household needs in order to assess their financial health. One is a budget, which is a record of all the cash that goes in and all the cash that goes out over a period of time, usually a year. I believe in doing a year, not by the month, just taking a helicopter view first. And the other is a personal financial statement, which shows you all your assets, what you own, all your uh, liabilities, what you owe, and determining your net worth, which is the difference between the two. Uh, We then talk about credit and how to improve your credit score and you're and checking on your credit. So that's all in the foundation. I, I won't go into so much detail. Um, no, amazing. And this is like, I feel all the time, I think that financial 
literacy is just, it's something that should be taught even in high school and it's not in this country. Well, I mean, I feel like that and like understanding marriage and a contract and that it's a legal agreement and what all that involves, like, you know, like taking care of children, you know, there's just basic things that we are not taught. So I commend you for, you know, putting together this program that's even more specific for people that are business owners because they do need to understand all the financial implications. At this point, at this point, um, not all my students are business owners. As a matter of fact, the information, while, for example, I give it one of the, that was the foundation segment. I give an investment segment, which has nothing to do with business owners. It's learning what a stock is, what a bond yeah. is, create a diversified portfolio. Another section I give, I say it's it would be easier to go to the dentist and have all your teeth pulled, but I give a course on taxation. And we go through an entire 1040 so that you understand every single line. And there, there's a lot of emphasis on Schedule C, which is what how entrepreneurs report their income and expenses. I would like to sit in on that class. Okay. <laughs> Home office deductions, we talk about (laughs) self-employment taxes so that people understand that you literally do a tax return. Wow. And and QBI, qualified business uh, in income or there's a credit you get there. Um, And you go line by line. And the purpose I say to my students is not to have them um, necessarily um, be able to do their own tax return, but to catch the mistakes that their accountants do. And yeah, they really feel comfortable with it, taking the fear out of finance. Um, <laughs> I give a class on real estate and it's geared primarily for first time home buyers. We talk about all the things that go into a purchasing decision. We look at a closing statement, a settlement statement, what to expect. People think they just think in terms of the price of the house. It's only one part of it. There's And, and we talk about title insurance. We talk about uh, mortgage tax for both the state and for the city. Uh, and so that they get a sense of what that is about, especially if they're considering becoming a landlord. We look mm-hmm. at it at the back end, all the selling expenses, all the real property transfer tax and the broker's fees and the things people have to know about. People go in very starry eyed thinking, oh, everybody makes a lot of money on real estate. When they begin to realize the nitty gritty of what goes behind it, it's, it becomes more evident that it may not be the easiest way to make investment money. Right. Great for your own home. And then finally, last year, I put together or this year, I put together something called Money and Life Cycles where we start at birth and we talk about everything you need to do with money up until death. So that includes how to talk to children about money, college savings accounts, savings bonds. We do, we go again over the budget, the personal financial statement, and then we do something that all the women are always interested in, which is prenuptial agreements and and divorce. (laughs) If I had known what I know now, I could have saved myself a lot of money because there's there's ways of preparing yourself also to recognize that divorce is essentially the breaking of a contract mm-hmm. only certain things that are decided and that and that has to do with how assets are divided child support alimony and child custody 
who did what to who, the courts couldn't care less about. No. That is important. So much energy is wasted on it. It's totally silly. Nobody, and, and if you know that going in, you can be much more efficient with your energy. Um, and I, and then we talk in that class about retirement preparation, preparing a budget for retirement, mm-hmm. finding out how you're going to fund that retirement. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do people's expenses change in retirement unless they relocate. It's a right. big myth. It's a bit, you know, that, oh, I'm going to be spending less. Quite the opposite. Sometimes you spend more because what you don't have to spend on work clothing, which people don't do anyhow anymore, um, or commuting expenses you spend on travel. And unfortunately, you begin to see this little align item creep in, which has to do with health related costs. They become much more part. They become a budget item as you get older. That's just the reality. Yeah. Finally, we did the last class. We talk about preparing for death, which is uh, wills and uh, trusts. And the people they get they, those words are thrown out all the time. People get very confused, and that understanding that certain decisions have to be made before you even walk into an attorney. You know, yep. you have to know who are you going to put in charge of your children if you have minor children. Who's going to take care of them? Uh, um, at least who who you'd like to take care of them custodial wise? Who would you like to take care of them financially? And putting these things in place, I try to touch a little bit on life insurance when you need it, and specifically when you don't. Um, yes, that's sort of the whole cycle. So, uh, oh my goodness! So these last two programs, they're through SCORE. But so, you don't have to be a small business owner to take all. part no, in them. Not at all. So the 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 Money One Hundred One program, which I've now on my fourth year, there's a tremendous amount of, of handouts and materials you have to give to students. Um, has is pretty it's pretty well developed, and I love Score. I love doing it through Score. But I, but unfortunately, the way SCORE is set up, it is only promoted through the New York chapter. And I, I'm thinking now about ways to bring it to a lar- larger audience. Yes. Um, and it's not about, for me, fortunately, it's not about money. I do this on a volunteer basis. But what is the best audience to attract people who will be really engaged? Um, at SCORE, there's this minor fee for participating in the program, but it's very necessary as far as I'm concerned, because if people do not pay for something, they don't take it seriously. Right. And even at that point, they still don't necessarily take it seriously. My classes are a tremendous amount of work. There's homework of two hours every week. And if you do not do the homework, you the concepts are definitely not reinforced. Yeah. It's, it's only for people who are really serious, uh, which brings me back to a point that you made. Many of my students say, oh, I wish I had known this in high school, or this should have been taught in high school. Unfortunately, my experience has been that people actually have to get themselves in trouble with money and have some experience working for any of this to make a, a big impact. Yeah. So I have had students in their early 20s, but they really haven't quite gotten it unless they're out in the work field. Yeah. Most of my students come to me in their mid 30s. And my uh, one of my favorite students is 79 years old. So amazing. um, And they and and so I you have to have some life experience for it to register. That makes sense. 
I know. Yeah. Still, some of it needs to happen in high school. Something, some baseline. (laughs) We need to add that in. Oh my goodness. Well, this is terribly interesting. So right now they can only, like they have to go through SCORE NYC to get to both of those last two programs. Oh no, Money 101 is a a program of five segments. Yeah. And you, right now you register through SCORE New York City. And I have a calendar, if anybody writes to me, I'm, you're free to publish my email. I have no problem. Okay. Um, uh, if they write to me, you can write, give me, uh, you can publish my personal email. I will give them the calendar going forward for the classes for the balance of 2023 and 2024. Great. Um, we're having a party of the women next in August that have completed all five segments. So remember five segments is 25 classes. It's 50 hours of classwork. It's really, it's kind of like a college college course that they've made it through. That's worth celebrating. I love that. It's worth celebrating. I'm very, very proud of them. And we have tremendous diversity among the people who take the class. But I am, as I said, I'm looking to, or people have suggested that it would be an extremely helpful class for new immigrants uh, who really are clueless. Um, yeah. But you, you know, you, it, and, but I'm open to delivering the program under different venues. And that's, okay. that's one of the things I'm exploring now. What is the appropriate um, platform, I guess, is the best way of putting it. Okay. Very good. So all of this score business that you, all this volunteer work that you've been doing and on these programs you put together, how much of your time does that take like compared to like your work time in the office? Like what is would, it replacing? Would, is it I would say a lot less? I spend as many people do who are retired. Um, I spend a tremendous amount of time on physical health. Okay. So out of a day, out of my day, um, I am almost always busy from eight in the morning until at least 11 with something related to going to the gym, taking a spin class, doing weightlifting. Excellent. Um, there is no doubt. And all the other people there have a lot of gray hair, just like me. Uh, <laughs> and that's definitely a focus. Um, I, regarding my score activities, I'm probably spending about six to eight hours a week on it. And that includes preparing material for the class, one-on-one mentoring of my students. So many people, once you take a class with me, you are entitled to lifetime, unlimited, private mentoring at no cost, uh, which I do as part of my volunteer efforts on your personal situation. So I talk to women who are in the middle of a divorce. I talk to people who are thinking about buying a house. I talk to people who have problems with the IRS. I talk to people who are planning for retirement. Everyone's story is a little bit different. And sometimes they're more much more comfortable speaking in a private session. I often speak to a couple so it's, you know, if they're, if they're married, it obviously makes most sense to have both parties in my mentoring session. So I guess I would call myself a financial coach. Um, and I try to encourage people to get the knowledge so that they don't have to rely on professionals 
And I don't mean not use professionals. I yeah. rely on professionals. So if right. you understand how your tax return is done, you certainly can have an accountant. And that's a great thing to have. Um, and you, you know, and, and it's worth the fee that you pay, but you should be able to understand it. If you want to create a stock and bond portfolio or a mutual fund portfolio or a target date fund portfolio, you should understand exactly what's in it. Um, but you may want to run it by a financial advisor who's certified and get a second opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. So my idea is that to give people knowledge. I'm always all about imparting knowledge, which comes to my last project I could talk about, which is my yeah. book. My book. Yes, yes. So I've been involved in real estate for about uh, 40 years. And um, I've been both a commercial landlord, I'm a commercial tenant and a residential landlord and residential tenant. And I am currently president of my condominium in Manhattan. So I don't know where are you located, Kara. I'm in Chicago and oh. also live in a condo building and I am not on the board. Okay. Well, <laughs> well you, done you. Okay. Well, if you walk around <laughs> the cities of both New York and Chicago, you will often see a lot of scaffolding up. And yep. the reason the scaffolding is up has nothing to do with um, new construction. It has to do with both of these cities, Chicago, because I spoke to an engineer in Chicago. I know yep. I know some people there. I live in an old building. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I, there, there are regulations that these buildings have to have their facades, meaning their brick, their stone, mm -hmm. their stucco, inspected every few years. New York is one of the most stringent um, laws and they have to be done every five years and they have to be inspected by someone who has expertise in whether or not the building is crumbling. And they're called the QE, Qualified Exterior Wall Inspector. Okay, it's really cool. Wow. <laughs> so they come around and they try to inspect your building. And if they find that there's something that is unsafe, the landlord has to immediately, not the next day, literally that day, put up scaffolding and to protect the public. And New York is really tough on this. It goes under the DOB, stands for Department of Buildings. And so you can walk around New York and you will see scaffolding everywhere. Some of it is because uh, a QE said it wasn't safe. Some is because it's actually under repair. Yeah. Uh, and so when co-ops and condos face these projects, they really don't know where to start. They don't know all the players that are involved. And I know I was one of those, one of those people. And when we started, we have to, you know, when I came on the board and we had to do this, I said, well, I wonder if it's going to cost us 10,000, 20,000. I mean, how much is it going to be? And so a, a year later with a $550,000 bill, I had learned a great deal. And because <laughs> I love construction, I decided I would write a guide or a book. It's 150 pages aimed at other building owners, particularly cooperative and condominium boards. And I had interviews. I had a great deal of fun. It was my COVID project. Um, I had a great deal of fun interviewing the architects, the engineers, the Department of Buildings, Department of Landmark Preservation, and putting it all together in what I hope is an easy to read manual so that a board member can say, okay, where do we start? 
and how do we proceed? And I have a couple of case studies in there, some projects that were as small as 200,000, some that went up to 3 million, and you can see how the money was actually spent. And this was all done for me to get, again, impart knowledge. But it's the most boring subject on earth. <laughs> I mean, how bad can it get? So I'm thinking, how on earth am I going to keep readers awake um, with, I have maybe 150 to 200 photographs in there just showing different conditions, different buildings, different scaffolding, different methods of access. But what I decided to do was to insert comics. So I hired a wonderful comic artist. And he drew up 60 comics, which are and jokes, which are part of the book. And so even if the board members don't want to read all the details, they can look at the comics and they can kind of get a big picture of some of the stuff that they have to deal with. Wow. I was a, it was a lot of fun writing that book. It's on Amazon and I've gotten really, really great reviews. So it's made me feel good and um you know, so I could say I'm a I'm a book author. Yes, you're an author now, and uh, just I am amazed with all the things you've done and all the purpose you found truly mm-hmm. in your life, which is what I hope all of my clients find. Right. <laughs> That's the goal: is to find purpose after you're not, um, you know, not in your corporate environment any longer. Um, one last question for you: um, What is your advice? for new retirees? My advice for new retirees is to make a list of their passions and to pursue them with a vengeance as though time is running out, to feel a sense of urgency with each day. Yes. Somewhere along the line, make sure that there is some give back to the world as part of what you're doing. Yes. Um, Make sure there's some extra time spent with family and make sure that there is time spent on your physical well-being. Yeah. Because we do not know when the window will close. And so that sense of urgency should be with you at all times. Not and that's and I'm always looking for what's going to be my new project. I love it. Diane, thank you so much for your time. This podcast is sponsored by Good Morning Freedom, my retirement coaching firm. I help executives and professionals plan the non-financial part of their retirement, like how to discover new purpose and how you want to spend your time. I offer a one-on-one coaching retirement blueprint package where we work together to discover some new avenues of exploration for your Act 3. This coaching is completely custom and will provide you with a ton of resources and support as you transition to this new stage of life. For all the details, please go to goodmorningfreedom.com services.